Welcome to Women Read Scripture. My name is Mariana Richardson. And my name is Annette Marie Lantos Tilleman Dick. And I'm Heather Ruth Pack. And Ruth, do you want to tell a little bit about yourself? Well, sure. So I teach at BYU with Mariana, and I teach business communications. And I'm also an online institute instructor. It's a brand new program, and I absolutely love teaching online. And I just recently, my director let me design my own course. So I have a course on Jesus and his interactions with women in the New Testament. Which goes right along with what Women Read Scripture is yeah. all about. Yeah. So I just love that. And you've also done some other curriculum for mm-hmm. Book of Mormon Central. And yeah, I've done some reading too, plans for the Scripture Plus app. And okay. I just love um, asking questions when it comes to the Scriptures. I'm a questioner. So I love looking for those thought questions, discussion questions. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Well, if I was to kind of put a theme on what we're going to be discussing today, it would be, what lack I yet? in terms of relationships, in terms of our relationship with God and relationship with other people. And I just love that talk by Elder Lawrence, where I just wanted to do a quick quote about it. The Holy Ghost doesn't tell us to improve everything at once. If he did, we would become discouraged and give up. The Spirit works with us at our own speed, one step at a time. And I think that's the beauty of the scriptures that we're going to be reading today. We're going to be reading Matthew 19 through 20, Mark 10, and Luke 18. And we're coming to the end of the Savior's life. And obviously, the Savior knows that. And as I read these wonderful, wonderful chapters, it is so chock full of information. I mean, there's just big concepts. It's kind of like the the Lord realizing, I don't have that much more time with yeah. you, and so I'm just going to dump all of this material that you have to know before I go. And it's really interesting to read it that way because, boy, every single verse, you just feel like there's such richness and so much material there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a huge treasure trove, you know, filled with jewels is how I feel. I love it. I love that analogy. Well, one of the things that he starts during this time, and we're also going to see how the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians are becoming more and more in your face. Mm -hmm. You know, they are really doing everything they can to catch the Savior. And it's interesting, they become rather creative. You know, there's... We're talking spies. We're talking (laughs) exactly, really insidious. Well, one of the things that we're going to first talk about was an interesting question that the Pharisees came up and asked. And actually, it's two questions that they ask. And the first one is, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now, I think that's an interesting question because it's not just for adultery or for doing something bad, but it's for every cause. Mm -hmm. And they're saying this to really catch him. They're tempting him. They're trying to see how he's going to answer this question of the law. And the Savior said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a manly father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Now, with that first wonderful answer, I was also thinking about the Come, Follow Me manual, and it gives us an activity. 
And now I, I thought it would be interesting just to kind of put that activity out here in terms of looking at that answer and seeing what is it the Lord is telling us about the basics of marriage and that relationship? What are some of your thoughts as, you know, this is a pretty profound answer mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that the Lord is giving the Pharisees and Sadducees. Do you have any thoughts about those eternal concepts that he's trying to teach people about marriage? Well, he's saying marriage is a big deal. It's it a is big, a big deal. It's a big deal, and it is a... Um, it is more than just it's more than just coming together to have a good time it's more than just coming together to have a family it is a coming together to be create almost a new individual you know you are supposed to be a new person who is now not only you you are you and the other person and the lord has put you together i love what martin luther said about marriage which is that marriage is a school for character and the Lord, <laughs> I agree and, with that. And 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 um, I it, that that line was very helpful to me over the years, um, in 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 what was I think a wonderful marriage. But but I think that that Jesus is saying, you become a new entity in the Lord's eyes, and um, ideally remembering that we are getting celestial laws on an ongoing basis from the Lord. Mm-hmm. If we hold ourselves to his standard and punish ourselves over and over again for not meeting it, we we could only feel very bad after, as much as I adore the New Testament, because none of us are living completely this beautiful celestial standard. And he puts out a celestial standard for marriage as well. I agree. Heather, do you Yeah, I think, you know, it's so interesting to me that there's actually very little in the New Testament where Jesus very overtly talks about marriage but he very often talks about it metaphorically in putting himself yes, as the bridegroom definitely. and us as the bride. And we see that in parables. We see that in his teachings. So not all of us are going to have an opportunity to be married in this life or even stay married in this life for whatever reason. But we do all have an opportunity to practice what he's preaching and teaching in our relationship with him and our relationship with the church. And so when I think about, you know, they're talking about, well, what are the reasons why it would be okay to get divorced? And um, I think it's it if you look at the metaphor of what are the reasons when it's okay to break those covenants with God, or when is it okay to walk away from the church? And I think what Christ is essentially saying is it's it's just, it's ordained of God. This is a very covenantal relationship. And there's so much we can learn looking at the concepts of marriage in our relationship with Christ. I love that larger vision of it. And I'm embarrassed to say I had not thought about this para- this instruction in that context. And it's so relevant, not to be too lighthearted about this, but you know, some people never marry. And mm-hmm. as someone who's been was married for a major portion of my life, um, and then my my husband died, and you know, now I've been alone for without a husband for 15 years, there definitely are, and I miss him because it was a wonderful marriage, but you realize that not marrying. It's not all bad, you know, mm-hmm. being alone. And and I will say that after the Lord gives this instruction, I love what his disciples say unto him. He explains to them that you, if you marry, you know, you need to stay married. And if right. you divorce your wife, except for fornication, you are causing her to commit adultery. Mm-hmm. It's a very serious mm-hmm. sin. Mm-hmm. And his disciples say unto him, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. <laughs> <That was> so- 
just for those An of you who aren't married. comment. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, are... and I do think this first question is very much kind of he's teaching the eternal law, just like you were saying. Mm -hmm. He's saying, look, this is the eternal principle, and that's the answer. And then the second question that they ask is very specifically about the divorce question. Mm -hmm. And they said, why did Moses then command to give a writ, writ, writing of divorcement and to put her away? So why in the law is it allowing us for divorce if you're giving us this principle? And his answer is pretty strong going back to that eternal principle. And he said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And that's a pretty, he's also kind of going back to the eternal principle of marriage. But that does not necessarily mean that he's saying that we can't get divorced, or he's not saying that divorce is bad, or if you got a divorce, you are an evil person. None of that is something that the Lord is saying in these verses. And I think that's really powerful and important for us to also realize. And also to remember that he is talking because this was a very male-oriented society. Definitely. So in this case, it was not The woman women didn't have were, a lot to do no, with, you know, with whether they got divorced. This was a man problem you know, in, yeah. in his society. And leaving women completely unprotected and without property and yeah. without... So it was a different setting in which they were discussing this. And I love this is also talked in the Come Follow Me manual very specifically, but President Oaks explained that the Lord permits divorced persons to marry again without the stain of immorality specified in the higher law. And so this is something that I think we also need to, to realize. And you even were talking about how it's important that we don't feel the guilt. You know, yes, we are dealing with people who are imperfect and a matter of fact, I love this quote when we we're talking about this. Um, President Nelson said, each marriage starts with two built-in handicaps. It involves two imperfect people. Happiness can come to them only through the earnest effort. And he uses this analogy of a shopper. And he said, when you're really going in to buy something that is of great worth, you spend the time to make sure, you know, you, you look underneath the, if it's a car, you look underneath the hood, you know, you double check. If, if you're buying a used car, you find out who the previous owner was and why they gave up the car. And it's a pretty interesting analogy when you think about that and entering into the marriage covenant in terms of some, some of the things that you think about. Okay, so did I spend the necessary time to make sure that I'm really getting what I thought I was getting. Well, and I find it interesting that, especially culturally in our religion, but I think in in other cultures too, we marry at such a young age. And I joke with my kids, I'm like, Avis won't rent you a car because you're not 25, oh, but you can go get married. <laughs> and so I think our, front, perfect. You know, our frontal lobes aren't fully developed, yet we're choosing this mate for life. And I, years ago, I was at a BYU Education Week, and I attended a class where they talked about a new—it was a paradigm shift for me on how to look at marriage, and that was this idea of cleaving, like Jesus is saying, you cleave to your spouse and you forget your father and mother. Obviously, that isn't—you don't forget them literally, but you I think it's you're forming a new person, like you said— and he talked about this idea of we, because it's so easy, I think, in a marriage. Well, you're doing this, and I'm doing this. And he said, 
if if your son or your husband commits a sin, we've committed a sin. We as a marriage, there is sin in our marriage. Instead of looking at a blame game, but more of a cleaving, okay, what can we do to fix this sin that has happened in our marriage? That's, it was a game changer for me. And I stopped oh, I looking that. at this tally mark with my husband and I and started looking at we are in this together and then we can fix this together. And I think same with the church. It's easy to look at the well, the church is doing this or that person said this. And but we that's we, so good. We are we having an issue. I love that. <laughs> because I mean that is so and I love this absolutely profound metaphor that mm -hmm. of course is all over the scriptures, but it is so apropos in this context and this idea, and it is very appropriate with the church. There are things that people were about, but the important thing is to remember, this is our place. This is how we have been given a path to serve the Lord and to find him. And when, if there are problems, when my, if my children, and you know, many of them, they're very bright and they love the church, but they'll say, you know, but why do they do? I said, have you written to the first presidency about it? And I mean, that's my, yes, there's some things that we can do, but you know, there are other things that you're very articulate. That's a good concern. Write a letter about it, you know, and see what, to help give them the ideas that, and the perspective you have. You so know, too. I completely agree. And as we're talking about this, we can ask ourselves, what lack I yet in terms of my relationship with my husband? You know, how, what lack I yet in my relationship with my children. And I do want to just end with President Nelson and his strong feelings about marriage. You know, as we talk about this and these relationships, and realize we're going to be talking more about relationships as we go forward. So a lot of these things, as you said, are eternal principles. And I think that's what we learn from the Lord in this little part, because a lot of times people read these verses that we just read and have these questions of, so what is he talking about marriage? What is it here? What he's teaching is the higher law. He's teaching an eternal principle. But our wonderful prophet also teaches us eternal principles and the higher law. And he has in 2006, in 2008, in 2014, and then most recently in a devotional, worldwide devotional in 2017, taught us very specifically about how important it is to nurture these marriage relationships. Mm -hmm. And he says, marriage brings greater possibilities for happiness than does any other human relationship. And this is one I know you all remember. While salvation is an individual matter, exaltation is a family matter. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so as we think about this idea of what lack I yet, when we think about our marriage and family relationships, I'm hoping that we can also bring it in terms of thinking, how can I bring this up to a higher law? Because that's what I think mm -hmm. the Lord was trying to do in those verses. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I know... Heather, you're going to go in and talk about the story of the rich man, which kind of goes along with this, what lack I yet? Because he's going to ask some very specific questions about that. Yeah. So let me see if I can find it. 15, 16, so, 22. Oh, here it is. 16 to Okay. 22. Yeah. Um, I, I've always... I think this is one of the stories that you just don't forget. I we even as a little kid remember this man just walks away because he's like, "What more can I do?" And he's like, "Okay, here's here's the Here here's the final thing." And he's like, "Ah, oh, dang it!" And you know, it's just kind of 
I I feel for the man walking away, feeling like he was so close and and just couldn't take it to the finish line. And um, one of the things that it reminds me of is years ago, my husband and I, when our kids were little, we lived in Arizona, and there was a family coming back into activity in the church. And so in in reuniting themselves with the church family, there were some things they had to change. And, and finally, she got to the point where she said to herself, what could I not give up for the Lord? And she says, I couldn't give up my Oriental rug. I just oh. love it so much. And I couldn't give up my van. It's just, she had a lot of children, and she just loved her van. And she goes, those two things are a deal killer. I just... Well, her basement flooded, ruined her rug, and her van caught on fire. <laughs> oh, of course. And I just think, isn't that how, is, yeah. and it's kind of a funny thing. And she just realized I could give it up. I had no choice but to give it up. And um, I think it, it really comes down to what are we willing, whether we're asked to give it up or not, could we? Could we give it up? And this idea of wealth and riches, um, it can it can get a little uncomfortable, I think, because we all are at different poverty levels, right? I had, oh, one, I had a thought I'd like to share at this mm -hmm. juncture because it's very interesting mm -hmm. in, in the context of what you've just said, Heather. Mm -hmm. When we think, would we be willing to give up our riches? Oh, yes. But that's easy to say when you don't do it, right. when you don't actually have to give the whole thing over. Mm -hmm. My family were Holocaust survivors. My father, my grandfather and was very prosperous man and and it wasn't quite the same but they had opportunity an opportunity at some point as the curtain was falling in eastern europe to um sell everything they were hungarian and just leave go to the united states it wasn't an easy opportunity but they could have done it and my wonderful grandfather was a beloved member of that society he was real very charitable man, and he was convinced, as were many people, that it wasn't going to be that. It was going to be a bad spot, but it would be okay. And he didn't, and he was killed in the Holocaust, and of course, everything was lost. And of course, it opened up new opportunities for our family, and that my, we found the gospel, you know, we came to, my parents ended up in the United States. It was a long, interesting story, but they were forced to give everything up, lives too. Yeah. And then they were able to be resilient. But my wonderful grandfather was very faithful. The idea of even when it wouldn't have been giving up everything, just completely changing their lives when it wasn't forced upon them is hard. Yeah. It's harder. Oh, you know, it's easier to speculate about it. Right. Well, and, and I think we, you know, there's not a lot as members of the church we're asked to physically give up. We're asked to pay our tithing. But, you know, there was a time, um, you know, with the pioneers where they were breaking China and to beautify temples. And I mean, we read those stories and we think, oh my goodness. But I think, okay, well, let's look at it today. What are some other riches we have that maybe we're, should be giving up, but we're not? And, you know, this idea of abundance, whether it's time or resources, or talents, and or all those things, yeah, all those things, <laughs> all, combined. The, all the and, above. <laughs> and can we yes. give those up for the building of the kingdom, or are we clinging to those and 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 wanting to just hold on to them 
and saying, my time is precious. Well, and I also think of the temple and, mm-hmm. you know, some of the covenants that we make there. But I also think, and this is something else that we're going to be talking about, how the Savior loved the temple. The temple was the centerpiece of his spiritual life, even when he was here on the earth, as the Lord's house, and he is the Lord. But it was interesting to think about how his example is complete in that area. He wasn't asking this young man to do anything that he wasn't doing Mm -hmm. himself. Mm -hmm. And I think in that same way, when we think of the way that the Savior is the centerpiece of our temple and our temple covenants, that we too need to ask ourselves, am I willing to give it all up for the Savior? Because that's what we promise to do in the temple as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I I think of um, the covenants that we make there. And, and when you get to the end, I think, okay, what what more am I willing? What What am I holding on to that I could give up right now. And it's kind of a a check for me, you know, when I make renew or remind myself of the covenants I've already made in the temple is, okay, what else, what else can I continue to consecrate to the Lord? And I think consecrating is important because I think this is the truth that the Lord doesn't ask us to give it up. He says, give it over and wait Mm -hmm. till you see what happens. Right. right, It's going to be wonderful. And I think that's the, it's when we are trying to guard our, Mm -hmm. what's ours, you know, and and make sure we don't give too much. And when we give more, usually we receive a truck. I saw, I, someone shared this with me once and I think it kind of goes is, it's this idea of scarcity mindset versus the abundant mindset. And it's this idea of your hands being closed because you're trying to hold on to it, but look at how little you can have. But when you open your hands, oh, that's beautiful. Look at all that can come in. I love it. And so I think it's just Jesus saying, "Open your hands." Yes. Look at what can more. Just let it go and look at all that more that can come in. And there may be a moment when we have to give up a lot and then be ready mm-hmm. to do it. We mm-hmm. we give up. I mean, when you look, I look back at our lives. I'm sure for Marianne, for you too, Heather. Who had, Five babies in six years, I think you told me. <laughs> yeah. um, and we were all, I'm sure, very active in church. And mm-hmm. it took a lot with the children and the activity. And there just was no bandwidth left almost. Right. And right. and it was a lot. And yet, I know I'm in a different place now. You know, the children are grown. I'm still very busy, but in certain ways, busy me. I, I told you the acronym meaning bound under Satan's yoke, you know, busyness. <laughs> but but um, I think that, that that giving, as we review our lives, we feel the satisfaction of having given in that way. So one of my um, favorite, I mean, this really happened when we were young and just having baby after baby after baby, and we we, we just had enough money to be able to get a place to live. We didn't have any money for furniture. I mean, literally, when I say no furniture, I mean not a stick. And the only way I finally got something in the basement was I would, when it was big garbage day, I would just take my my car and just go around looking for, uh, you know, s- some furniture that people were throwing away. Yes. And, and that was the only furniture we had. And so during that time, you know, but I also had just lots and lots of little children that probably would have messed it up anyway. And so for them, it was wonderful because they just had all this it's true. space to play around. And But during that time, I did 
kind of write a, a wish list where I sat down and I just said, okay, just, you know, sometimes when you're in that time of poverty, you just kind of go, okay, so what would, if I could have anything, what were some things that I could have? And so I wrote down just some silly things, some silly things that someday I would like to have, you know, things like, I would love a stained glass window. You know, I would love a spiral staircase. I would love, I mean, just just thinking outside the box of, you know, someday, and here I am in this tiny little house with absolutely no furniture and thinking, okay, you know, these are just some, some things, silly things. And I did see them as silly things. But then uh, quite a few years later, we had moved again, and this was many years after that, and I found that little notebook, oh. and I opened it up, and I was sitting on our spiral staircase next to a stained glass window oh. with a grandfather clock in there in the entryway, and as I read, and I had completely forgotten about that list, and as I read through that list, all I could think of my heart, I just started crying, because I thought... The Lord watches out. And I love the fact that he looks at our needs and wants. And now that does not mean that all of our wants happen in this life. Right. I mean, for me, that was it's a completely metaphor, a miracle. Mariana, it's a beautiful he, metaphor the to Lord share because both. I think that we can. I mean, for me, I want nothing except I want my daughter back, I want my baby back, and I want my husband back. Yeah. Other, otherwise, I really have not too many material right. needs that I want, mm -hmm. or I really would be happy with nothing. But I believe I'm going to get those just the way you got those beautiful mm -hmm. things uh, that that were just a little metaphor for Mariana. You gave it your all, and guess what? This this all these things shall be added unto you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And it's not physical things that the Lord, no. though though there are lots of physical healings, lots of physical things, as we're reading, that happen in these marvelous chapters. But they are truly meant to point us towards the greater vision of something that yeah. is, is beyond the physical in this life. And, and that goes material. right along with this idea of the labors of the vineyard. Mm -hmm. And especially as we talk about that parable, I, I also love the idea of the Lord's timing. You know, when you were talking about that wants and needs, we have the hope that all that the Father have has will be ours if we live righteously and are true to our covenants. And so um, thinking about that as kind of a background for this wonderful parable. It is a wonderful parable. And I will say that I am still definitely having great new awarenesses. The first time, I don't know if everybody remembers this parable, but it is, we're reading a parable that begins Matthew chapter 20. And um, and the Lord begins it, letting us know this is going to be a metaphoric story. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. Now, it's interesting because they say right away, it's interesting because that the owner of these vineyards is going out to get the laborer be, laborers because we find out later that he does have a foreman mm -hmm. because he tells his foreman to pay them. Mm -hmm. But he is going out himself to get the laborers. And... um. So he goes to the place where laborers are gathered. We have a place like that in Denver. I live in the city where men and women who want work come and people who need workers can go and find those. But this this was a place where people went. And um, 
Elder Holland has a beautiful talk on this, but I'm going to, and I'm going to quote from it, but um, he explained that there are lots of people there, you know, and they, they go out and they choose a number of people. In, in that time, many people had a subsistence level existence. Their lives depended on getting work. So those first workers who were chosen were very fortunate mm -hmm. because of the big work pool. He chose, let's say, 10. Mm -hmm. And they negotiate, which is very interesting. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So he doesn't tell them what he's going to. They talk mm -hmm. about it and they agree that will be. And when we say a penny, it was a denarius, which was they translated it in the King James Bible as a penny. Mm -hmm. But it was, according to those who have done the research, a decent daily wage. It was an appropriate wage for a day, this denarius that they mm -hmm. negotiated. So they go into the vineyard. And then later as the day goes on, um, he goes back to get more workers. And it says that, so he goes back, first it's at daybreak, then it's at nine in the morning. And he goes and gets more workers. And then he goes back at um, noon, I think, or no, and then at the sixth hour and the ninth hour. Um, and then about, now, I don't think they mean the 11th hour of the day, but because um, Elder Holland sort of parsed it a little more carefully for us, that, but, but he goes then when the day is almost done and there's maybe only an hour of daylight left and there's still some workers there. And he asks... Um, why are you still here? And they say, because nobody's asked us to work. And I think that's really important. They, are, they have not been lazing around all day. They have been waiting for work. And they still are waiting because they need the money for their families. And um, he says, come, come and work. And they, they as, as Elder Holland said, they must have been rejoiced. They oh, just could not believe their good fortune that this late in the day they were going to be allowed to work. And they don't do any negotiation. He says, I'll pay you what is fair. And they're like, great, whatever we can get will be better than nothing. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think it is so important to create that understanding of what's happening here. And then the workday is over. And some of them have worked for an hour, some of them worked for three hours, some have worked five hours, some have worked for eight hours that day. And he um, calls his, his um, hire, his um, four, foreman and says, pay them and pay the first, pay the last people I picked up first. So the last ones who came in are going to be paid first, which of course, this is a very clear illustration of that promise we've heard in the mm -hmm. in the um, Sermon on the Mount that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And they are paid a denarius. And everyone who came to work is paid the same wage. To which some people react, <laughs> the people at the beginning of the day are outraged. Mm -hmm. And why, why do you think they're outraged, Heather? <laughs> it just... It hits home because um, it, it, it comes, being the oldest of six kids, uh, we were always worried about fairness, right? You know, we always were worried about, well, if he gets it, then do I get denied? And and so I think, yeah, I think it's a very visceral and real emotion of, that's not fair, you know? I know when I first heard this story, when I was a little 
kid, you know, because my mom mm -hmm. read me the Bible stories. I've explained that. Um, I thought, well, is that right? You know, yeah. they, they, they worked all day. But what, as I thought about it, first of all, to understand that to work is a privilege, to have work is a privilege. Those of us who worked so hard in church, who had four jobs and many children, all it was a gift that we had these opportunities to serve. Yeah. And, and you know, we it is wrong to evaluate and say, oh, well, they just came. They didn't have to do that when they were young. They didn't have to do it with their children, somebody who joins the church when they're, you know, 60 or whatever. Um, but what we don't, what we need to understand is the work itself is a gift as well. Um, Elder Holland, so um, the, the, the farmer says to the people who protest, they are, um, they, they murmured against the good man of the house saying, these last have brought but one hour and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered, friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny? Take that is thine and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. I, it's so beautiful. And it is, of course, a metaphor, as these all are. Mm -hmm. But that many people don't have the opportunity to labor within the gospel. Many didn't understand and left. But the Lord wants us back, and the blessings are going to be there. This, they, and they will be the same in certain ways for each of us. They will be different because they will be suited to us. We will have the benefit of the extra work we have done because it makes us stronger and more capable, the extra work, and, and able to withstand more. I love, um, Elder Holland has a new book. I'm going to share it with you. Oh, it's called Our Day Star Rising. And it is a wonderful compilation of things he has said and written, and it's organized around the New Testament. It is a wonderful oh, resource. Nice. So I do want to share it. But he talks about envy because that is the problem here, this mm -hmm. idea that it isn't enough to have your own, but why should they have the same as I do? Mm -hmm. Or why should they have that good fortune to have come at the end and not mm -hmm. had to work so hard? I love what he says about it. He said, envy is a mistake that just keeps on giving. Obviously, we suffer a little when some mis misfortune befalls us. But envy requires us to suffer all good fortune that befalls everyone we know. What a bright prospect that is, downing in another quart of pickle juice every time anyone around you has a happy moment. To say nothing of the chagrin in the end, when we find that God really is both just and merciful, giving to all who stand with him all that he hath. As the scripture says, um, as the scripture says, he gives to all all that he hath. So lesson number one from the Lord's vineyard, coveting, pouting, or tearing others down does not elevate your standing, nor does demeaning someone else improve your self-image. So be kind and be grateful that God is kind. It is a happy way to live. Um, I love that, and I think it's such a good reminder for all of us. I love it too, in that it also reminds me of Elder Holland's talk about the prodigal son. Mm -hmm. And we think about that the brother who, you know, stayed there, and it's so similar to this same parable in that he did everything right and he didn't, you know, go down that other path like the prodigal son did. And yet he asked the Lord, you know, 
come on, how come I didn't get a fatty calf? And how come it, it's the same thing as these laborers saying, well, come on, how come they're getting the same thing that I'm getting? And we see a very similar idea of envy and pointing fingers and things like that. And I, I, you know, to be honest, I did struggle with that mindset for quite a few years. And this feeling of, hey, I'm working really hard to obey my way into heaven. Um, and they're not. So how are we both getting the same heaven, you know? <laughs> and, um, and then I had a very personal experience with my grandparents. My grandmother was the bread baking, Relief Society going Mormon woman. She just checked out. She was amazing. She did everything. Her husband, my grandfather, was a cigar smoking Sunday, you know, go to the bars kind of a, I mean, he was a great man. I don't want to make him out to be like a loser, but he, he rarely, I don't think he ever went to church that I'm aware of. I never saw him go. And he would go rock hunting on Sundays and, you know, and he just, he was kind of a grumpy little man. And, um, and then at the very end of his life, he decided he wanted to go to the temple. He was 90 years old, could, was very crippled with arthritis, literally had to be carried into the temple. And he had been married in the temple 60 years before, so he didn't receive his endowment, but in a sense, he did. And all of a sudden, I'm like, do I want him to have less than my grandmother in the next life? Absolutely not. And it just, it was like all that just washed away from me with the prodigal son. And it's like, give my grandfather the fatted calf. Give him all, give him all that the father has because I want to be where he is. And it just helped me so much with the parable of the vineyard and the prodigal son to see it in my own life. Oh, it's so beautiful. And you know what? I think there is, an, there are, that is a beautiful experience. My grandmother, my grandmother, who was a Holocaust survivor, joined the church when she was 89 years old. Oh, but not, that's wonderful. So that was pretty cool too. But, that's pretty cool. Um, but um, what I think is also a beautiful piece of this is that the Lord, the farmer, the, the man who owns these vineyards is, of course, the Lord. And he mm -hmm. keeps coming back for us. Mm -hmm. He's coming back. He's there. And he is, it's not, even though I think that we have to hold to the metaphor that he has work to be done mm -hmm. and he needs workers for that work, it's not to him all about, and I do think this is an economic principle that we should practice more of, it's not all about the money. It's not all about how much money he's going to make or how much he's going to spend. It's about the workers too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, it's sort of a very wonderful thing. Yes, they're coming and they're working and the ones who worked in the morning worked all through the heat of the day and the others worked more and the last ones worked to bring in that crop. But at the end of the day, he cares about those workers. And that is... And, and all the same. He cares and about he, them all. Each of them all the same. But my, when my first son married his wonderful wife, her paternal grandmother, she took my son to meet her grandmother. And I'm trying to think if they were already married or maybe they were engaged. And she said, and when they went in, she said, well, I love you both. And I love you both just the same. And my wonderful daughter-in-law said, I was like, what? How can he, she love him as much as she loves me? <laughs> but, but I, I thought that was her heart that she, you know, this young man was now going to be a part 
of what her daughter was. And she loved him just the same. You know, I love That's that. beautiful. Well, when we talk about judging, we also have a tendency, I think, sometimes to judge, as we've talked about, judge people's righteousness or judge the way they say their prayers mm-hmm. or, you know, kind of going along with this idea of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. So let's turn to Luke. We're going to read Luke 18, 9 through 14. And for me, this is fascinating to kind of go along with this, what lack I yet, because I do feel we see this in in prayers where, you know, we'll say a long prayer, but is it truly a prayer even? Mm -hmm. You know, are we really (laughs) making a connection? And we're going to see, see that in these verses. And starting in verse 9, because I want you to notice the description. And Jesus spake this parable unto certain, so he's saying this is specifically for certain people, which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Mm. And I love that phrase. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That doesn't mean that they were, but they thought they were. They were trusting in themselves that they were. And then, and despised others. And for me, that is the key. So they thought they were better than everybody else. And those that weren't as righteous as they were, they despised them. And so then he goes on and he says, this is the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men, are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even... As this lowly publican, <laughs> you just can hear him say that. Yeah, yeah. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, and this, and I love this because the Savior doesn't always do this, but in here, he's being very specific. I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts about having the right kind of prayer? And along with that, how do we truly abase ourselves? Because I don't think what the Lord is saying is is that we tear ourselves down. You know, Mm -hmm. that we put ourselves down or that we say, I'm a terrible person. I don't think that that's what the Lord is saying. So I wanted to ask you, what are some of your thoughts about the difference between these two prayers of the Pharisee and the publican? It just, I have to chuckle. You know, I've heard Jesus taught the upside down kingdom. And, you know, he was really putting people upside down. But I, I just have to chuckle. It's like, the Pharisees saying, oh, I'm so righteous, but I despise others. I'm like, right then, could you not see? <laughs> if you're despising oh, others, wrong. could you not? I mean, that's, that's just got a problem running through the it's just, scriptures. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. so funny how, and and I find it interesting as I go through the New Testament, especially developing this course, I can't find a single instance where Jesus calls a sinner a hypocrite. Every time I see him calling someone a hypocrite, it's the ones who are claiming Think. To not be sinners, right? And so Jesus loves broken things. And and I think it's really coming to the prayer, acknowledging that you're broken, acknowledging I am not everything I should be. 
I am broken. And um, Elder, or I think it was President Eyring at the time when he said it was, I believe it was October 2014, he was in the New Era, the magazine for the youth. He talked about praying in a way of changing character instead of asking for things. Yes. And and um and I love that concept of God is not a vending machine. You don't go in and put the quarter and say I want this, I want that, but he he is concerned about what we're becoming. And and I always say I, I tell this to my students all the time, you are not human doings, you are human beings. Right. <laughs> and 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 it's coming to the Lord petitioning him Help me become what thou would have me become instead of, oh, I, I did this or I didn't do this or look at me, look at me. And I, there are three things that, that these, um, these things you brought up, Heather, bring to my mind, and I love them. First one is we had a very political family, mother-in-law, my father, my husband, and did a lot of door-to-door stuff with sure. that. And... It was really interesting. It's, you know, you sort of have to say, okay, I'm going out, knock on doors. Um, but I began to really like it because you would meet people you would never have met. And one of the big takeaways I had from that experience, from those many experiences, was that people who came to the door and spoke to me very kindly were oftentimes, not oftentimes, but I must have met at least 10 in the course of this, maybe more, felons. And they were so kind. Some people were like, oh, I don't want to talk to anybody. You know, go, you know, blah, this, that, that. They listened and they said, I'm so sorry. I wish I could vote. I'm a felon and I can't vote anymore. And I realized how much it meant. And I'm really sad that I don't have that privilege anymore. But I think it's great that you're going and trying to get votes for your dad, your mother-in-law, your husband, you know. And the humility of that statement. It was so humility profound. And I understand how the Lord felt because at the end of the day, I felt so much love for the felons that I met because mm -hmm. there, there was a humility there that was so beautiful. The next thing that it brought to my mind was um, when I was in gra uh, not gra undergraduate, my, I had to do a senior paper and I did it on a woman named Margaret of Navarre who was a French woman. She was a queen of a little place called Navarro and she was a leader in, in the reform movement. She had all these because she lived in the 15, in the 1500s, so 16th century, and there were all these new religious ideas. And um, she, had, she, she wrote about them in a book called The, um, the Heptameron, and there are lots of interesting, fun stories. Some of them are a little bit modeled off the Decameron, so it's a little racy sometimes. Sure. But, <laughs> in, but they're all sort of morality stories. And, mm -hmm. and one of them, which I'll never forget this, you know, it was French, but it was like, pride is the most dangerous sin because it builds itself on the foundation when all the other sins have been raised. And, you know, I remember mm. I had to look it up because I was reading in French and it was like when you've managed to get all, and it took me a while to understand that when you've got all those other sins that we hear about apparently under control, pride builds, and she said, builds a big house on that foundation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to Just remember like the Pharisees that. were talking. You know? mm -hmm. And there was one more thought I had, but 
Now I've lost. Oh, well, I'll, I'll <laughs> add it then. I'll add it. Great. Um, so Bishop Edgeley gave a wonderful talk about the empowerment of humility, that there truly was power. And he said, it matters not who we are or how lofty our credentials appear. Humility and submissiveness to the Lord, and it's to the Lord, coupled with a grateful heart, are our strength and our hope. Humbly submitting our will to the Father brings us the empowerment of God, the power of humility. It is the power to meet life's adversities, the power of peace, the power of hope, the power of heart-throbbing love, and a testimony of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And for me, uh, you know, like I said, I love to see the interconnection between our New Testament and our Latter-day scriptures, specifically mm -hmm. the Book of Mormon. Yeah. And when I was reading this wonderful parable, I couldn't help but not think about the Psalm of Nephi and oh. Second Nephi chapter 4. And so I do want to just read just a, a couple of verses, because for me, it is such a perfect example of the power of humility in terms of teaching us and changing us, well, because he acknowledges his sins, but then he acknowledges who changes him. And this is starting 2 Nephi 4, verses 17 through 19. And this is Nephi. He says, Nevertheless, notwithstanding the great goodness of the Lord in showing me, so there's his submission, showing me his great and marvelous works, my heart exclaimeth, Oh, wretched man that I am. And I don't know about you, but boy, oh, wretched woman that I am. Um, yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh. My soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. And I'm sure all of us can relate to that. And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. But this is the important part. Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted, my God hath been my support. So I love that in, you know, when we think about the parable that we just read in the New Testament, but then bring in, in the Book of Mormon, what Nephi teaches us about humility and how, yes, we can sorrow for our sins, but we rely on God to give us hope to give us support and to help us to rejoice. And he will. I mean, that's yeah. the wonderful thing. When we go to the Lord, not with a list of things we want from him, but with a request to help us be better people mm -hmm. and be specific because we have to look at ourselves and say, I know that I need to work on this. I need help with this. I need, and the wonderful thing is the Lord can give us those gifts. And mm -hmm. They are the best gifts. They are. Well, and as we talk about gifts, let's also talk about the parable of the unjust judge, because that woman is trying to seek a gift of repentance or mercy or however we want to describe it, but she's in a terrible state. And yeah, in fact, you know, and that with what you were saying, it just immediately made me think of that parable because I I love how Christ basically says, look, if even this unjust judge is willing to finally hear the pleas, would not God, who is perfectly just, be willing to hear us cry day and night? In verse 7, um, which cry day and night unto them, though he bear long with them. And 
that bearing long with them, I think, is, and the Joseph Smith translation is bear long with men, meaning everybody. Um, I think that's where the true test of faith can come. And it reminds me of when I was 12 years old, I had this assignment to fill out a pedigree chart, and I couldn't get to the fifth generation because we didn't know who my great-grandparents, my great-grandfather's parents were. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to pray to God, and he will help me find my great-grandparents. And um, that prayer went unanswered for over two decades. And I spent, you know, put my babies to bed. I'd stay up late searching. And I remember just crying to the Lord going, am I not asking for a good gift? Am I not asking? And I'd read miracles in the enzyme of people who had these miraculous discoveries. And year after year after year, I am stuck on my fifth generation. And I just thought, where is the Lord in this? Do I not have enough faith? What am I lacking? What am I not doing correctly? And finally, I was 45 years old and found his true identity, found his parents. And in a week, I had 50,000 names to take to the temple. Oh, Oh. that's amazing. And so I... That's such a fabulous metaphor. (laughs) But I... I, So when I hear of these stories of pleading and and being met with silence, the Canaanite woman also comes to mind where she's pleading on behalf of her daughter and the Lord meets her with silence. I think it's so important we remember that what I think Christ is trying to help us see is just because we're being met with silence does not mean we are being ignored. And now that I look back on all those years of research trying to find, I gained so many tools, so many skills. I have been able to help countless others with their genealogy, which never would have been possible if my answer had come immediately and I wouldn't have appreciated it and I think as the widow is pleading and pleading and pleading um it probably is making the reward or the answer that much more sweet that is so and that's what happens when our prayers are finally answered and I think it's just important that we remember just because we are being met with silence does not mean God has turned his back on us or does not want to bless us. Or that we shouldn't keep praying. And that we should continue the, to petition, and, and keep petition those the Lord. In our mind and heart as something of value and worth. As long seeking. as we are asking for the better part, right? As yes. long as we and and if and maybe it again it's going back to what lack I yet. Am I praying for the right thing? Maybe I need to have a a, a be um a conversation and think about Am I involving the Spirit in this prayer? Am I letting the Spirit help me understand what I should be praying for? And and if but I just I thought surely filling out a pedigree chart is not a bad thing, you know. <laughs> I just couldn't believe that I wasn't for asking for something good. But I clung, clung to that faith that eventually it would. And I the day it came, I knew instantly that I had the right person. Oh, and the spirit amazing. just said, this oh. is the answer to your prayer that you've uttered, uttered since you were 12 years old. Wow. I don't think I would have recognized it had I not been yearning and petitioning for all those decades. Oh, and you learned so much, I'm sure, in that search. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, incredible. I love the, in, the first verse of this, and I, I liked it because it was so different in a way from some of the other things the Savior has said. And he spake a parable unto them 
to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. That we are sort of saying the importance of this act of praying for mm-hmm. what? 35, 40 years almost, you know, 30, like Felt like 100, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, for that thing, you know, I, I love that you were looking for a name. You know, we used to pray every night and every morning that my father would see the world in a different way, that he would mm-hmm. open his heart to the Savior. You know, I mean, this was a, mm-hmm. a... And you know what? It didn't happen exactly in this life, but I have had a strong assurance that it's happened. Yeah. As my father's moved forward. And... um. And I did feel a great sense of gratitude for that. And I thought of that and how long we prayed for it. Um, I I think I love this. I love that whole story that I like the whole characterization of that judge who he feared not met God and neither regarded man. He must have been a really bad guy. <laughs> yeah, he must have been a really yeah, bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, and in stark contrast, we also have this idea of we are to become as a little child. Mm-hmm. And as I think about that metaphor, where we see the judge being the exact opposite, and yet we are to, and it kind of goes with our theme of what like I yet, and this idea of humility and submission to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we do need to receive the kingdom of God like a little child. And I have to laugh about this a little bit because, you know, I, I'm the oldest of 12 children and I had 12 children. And my father was so funny because he had such a hard time with this scripture because he said, you know, little children sometimes can be kind of mean and selfish and, you know, can hurt each other. And so he was like, so I'm I'm trying to understand what it means to be receiving like a little child in terms of those things. So well, Annette, what do you think? Well, you had a lot I, of babies too. I love that you said what your father, what your father's um, response to this, because I was telling Heather that my mother, I spoke to my mother, I won't give the whole backstory, but there was a little bit of backstory about this conversation. But we were talking about the scriptures that I was going to be talking about. And I brought up this story of the children being um, brought by the parents and um, the disciples rebuking the parents, literally rebuking them and saying, which you know, that happens in a lot of places where we say, no, you can't bring little children in here. Right. And and I think it's, it is interesting to note that and I think your dad might have been a little um um a little calmed when he realized they were talking about very he's talking about very little children because in all of them it says little children, little children, and even infants. infants right. So I don't know I hadn't looked at the Greek word, but apparently the word so is for babe in arms. Babes in right. arms or right. very small children. Oftentimes we see the lovely picture of children. But these were according to what was it, little, little children. And I I was telling my mother that, you know, I love that the Savior, it even says in one of the accounts that he is displeased with his disciples, you know, that they are not, they're rebuking these people and telling them not bring children. My mother somehow that day thought I was talking about teaching Relief Society. She said, well, but honey, Mothers are with their children 24-7. They need a break. They need a break. And sometimes they don't want to bring their children. And I thought that was very funny, actually. Um, but And it, it brought me down to reality in a way. But I, I, um, I happened to be one of those people. I was very fortunate that I really enjoyed being with my children. 
and I didn't bother me. Though I will say once I had just had, I think my eighth baby or something, and I was called to be the nursery leader. And I thought, really? You know, I have, I have a very similar story. Oh, did you? So yeah, I think that's kind of Well, and normal. I actually have a very opposite story because I think we all as moms with lots of kids think, please don't call me to nursery. I do this 24 seven and can I just have one hour with adult conversation? And um, when my son was, my oldest was, nursery age, I went into the nursery to pick him up and he was in the arms of a general authority. And I was shocked. And this general authority had come to our ward unofficially. He wasn't there on church sure. business. And he was just there visiting a friend. And in my shockness, I said, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, I thought, of all the places to be, you're in the nursery. <laughs> and he had spent two hours with the, the toddlers i love it and love it, love it, and love it. i i said why are you here and he said whenever i have an opportunity to come to church on unofficial business this is where i come for Isn't here it? i find those closest to heaven oh wow. that is such a beautiful that thing so and, beautiful. and i have in multiple callings of being in the nursery i've always remembered that i am now surrounded by those closest to heaven and it's true. And I remember that particular time when I was given that calling, you know, just when I had like, it was one of those times where I had a lot of very little children yeah. at home. Um, it was a wonderful time for me. And I got to, what I really treasured was the opportunity you had to know those kids who you eventually knew when they grew up, but you got to see them. One grew up to be a big, I mean, a pro football player. Others grew up to be, you know, tremendous gymnasts or you know, all sorts of things. And, and, we got to lift them up, you know, when they yeah. were little, they couldn't even, they weren't big enough to get climb up onto things themselves. So no, that, that was a wonderful gift. But um, I did have um, some thoughts. So, um, you know, why, why did the disciples want to keep the little children, the infants and little children away from the Savior? I mean, because, I mean, why, why do you, what are some good reasons? Why do people keep children out of women's conference, for example? We aren't allowed well, to be and, and, noisy, you and know, plus, and yeah. they cry. And the, and the culture, the culture. They don't know how to behave. Was, children were not to be interacted with or seen. They were to be hidden. Right. You know, that's culturally what was going on. It, and, and so, you know, I mean, the thing is, it isn't convenient oftentimes to have children around. It isn't, why do people not want children? Because they aren't convenient, you know, and little children are very inconvenient because they take a lot of attention. They can't survive without you, which I th I just thought of a point. But I, I love the babies. Oh my I gosh, love, I adore I love, them. Love. I say inconvenient because I think that's, that is practically true. But I mean, to me, and my kids know, I, I mean, I adore babies. I adore, you know, I remember when I had set, uh, maybe three or three very little children. And I remember writing a, a Christmas letter and saying, you know, the thing that is most amazing about this is being able to interface daily, deeply, with so much innocence, mm -hmm. so much innocence. And that is a gift that we, that I'm sure the Savior craved it. Oh, he was with all these jaded, cynical, you know, critical, supp critical, supposedly hyper-religious people who could not see the truth before them. And these babies were full of innocence and love, you know, or, or, and, and just, and even their parents who just, 
who cared enough that they wanted to push their way forward to have Jesus touch their children. And I think that um, for me, I love that Jesus loved them, that he actually reprimanded his disciples in one of the readings. He said he was very displeased and said, suffer. And then he goes further. It's not only that I want to be close to them. You need to become like these children. And I mean, what does it mean? To, what are the childlike qualities that he wants us to emulate? You know, I'll be honest, and I think we've seen lots of funny videos and, you know, jokes about this, but I think it's a very real thing is children have no filter. We get truth from them. We get authenticity from them. And and it, we could, you know, kind of make light of it and make fun of it, but um, it's it's so refreshing to be with children because they are not being hypocritical. They are not hiding who they are. Who they are is who they are. And and I think Jesus is trying to say, I value that authenticity. Yes. Well, and along with that, I think there is a good distinction between being childish and childlike. Right. And I think that that kind of goes with the initial thing I was saying about my, my father. I think he was going with the childish mm-hmm. part of children, right. where the childlike is that they truly are submissive. They are completely mm-hmm. submissive to their parents. They have to be. I mean, we're the ones that give them food and clothing and a place to live. And so because of that, they are. They are so, and they're also so loving. You know, mm-hmm. they really do. They just, they love you. They're forgetful of, of the hurt. And, yes. and let, let oh. me say on the flip side that learning to be patient, to be long-suffering, because some children aren't submissive. One of my best children, I remember she was two, she would have the, it was great because she was like our ninth child. So I told my husband and we said many times, I don't know if we'd have to have We'd have had as many children if they were like this. She'd have these little temper tantrums, you know. And and um, I think though, and you know, we we didn't spank our children. We didn't think, but you you have to learn ways of responding me, to your children. Way, right. And I think that that refines us. You know, we have to learn to be patient, to be creative, to be um, to be committed. Mm-hmm. to them in different ways. And and beyond that, I, I know that this story is, it must have been important because it's in all three mm-hmm. of the synoptic mm-hmm. um, gospels. You know, synoptic means, I, I wanted to say this, it means see, sin means the same, mm-hmm. optic scene, and it means seen at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like synthesis is bringing things together, the things, sin, it, uh, together at the, it means together, excuse me. Together, sin means bringing together and optic is seen together. And, you know, you can think of all the words synagogue means coming together to learn, Mm -hmm. together to learn in a synagogue Mm -hmm. or synthesis, you know, bringing all the ideas, the theses together, you know. Um, But and I think it is good to think of these um, Matthew, Mark and Luke are the synoptic gospels because Mm John is is a little different (laughs) and they are meant to be seen together they each have a different emphasis so this is a little off my subject but i wanted to throw this out because it was helpful to me to really understand better Mm -hmm. one shouldn't try to reconcile these gospels they have different stories that they're telling and they tell them in somewhat slightly different ways some of the stories are very similar Mm -hmm. and that's fine too um, this story of the children is very sim- similar, which makes me feel that it was important. Right. And I think 
an important piece of it is that the Savior wants parents to bring children to him. It's not only that he loved the children, but we need to think about how do we bring mm. our little children to Christ. That is beautiful. And since you both are experienced mothers, I'd like to know what your thoughts on are on that. Well, I, I think the number one way is example. Mm-hmm. And to make sure that Christ is centered in my life by the way I act, the things that I do. They see me going to the temple. They see me going to church. They see me serving other people. They see me acting the way with other people that I do at home, that it's not, I'm not two different people, but I'm the same person with other people as I am with them, as I am with Mm. my family, Mm -hmm. that um, I'm loving, kind, patient, wherever I am. And, uh, And I think all those things enable them to come to Christ as they see Christ through me. Yeah. And I think, you know, having all of us have had multiple kids, we're aware of they come as they come. They come with their own unique personalities. And my youngest came with language delayed issues and couldn't speak until he was over three years old. And 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 having to learn how to navigate those waters was very difficult for me. And and I think that's what Christ did. We see so many stories of him coming to where they are. And so it's looking at our children as they are and saying, Christ will accept them as they are. And if we can learn to love our children the way God sees him and or her and bring that child to Christ as they are, then we are learning that true Christ-like love. Well, we're coming to the end of our time today. And so I want to kind of bring this back to the the theme that we've been talking mm-hmm. about in terms of what lack I yet. And specifically, I, I would love for each one of us to maybe to share a final thought mm-hmm. about some of the things that we've learned today. I, I want to share one thought that I had. We talked a lot about riches. And one thought that came into my mind was this difference between having riches and trusting in riches, mm. which has also been kind of a theme that we've been talking about. And I, as you know, I just love, love, love the Book of Mormon. <laughs> and the thought that came to my mind was Jacob 2, 18 through 19. And this is the thought that I wanted to end with. But before you seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God. And after you have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches if ye seek them. And ye will seek them for the intent to do good, to clothe the naked to feed the hungry and to liberate the captive and administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. For me, that that is a number one reason why it is so important that we think and ponder what lack I yet, especially when we have so much abundance. How can I help the, you know, the sick, the afflicted? What can I do? How can I be hands for the Lord and Savior? And, and I love in the Book of Mormon where it also says, and if you don't have ability to do it, you want to do it, that you want to do it. And as we know, there are so many things that don't need resources, material resources to give, smiles, jokes, all of these wonderful things that can lighten others' burdens. So Heather, do you have a final thought? I think just a little different spin on that question is it's easy to look at our life and say, what lack I yet in that I don't have the marriage, I don't have 
the blessings I don't have. You know, there's so much it's easy to see that we do lack, but just never give up on the Lord because he's never going to give up on us and continue to petition for those good things. And the spiral staircase will come. The stained glass window will come either in this life or the next because God truly sees us as his children and will um, he will give us all that he has in due time. And so when we keep thinking about what I, what am I lacking? What am I lacking? It's ultimately asking, what is my relationship with the Lord? Yeah, I and, and I think that I, I, I'd like to end with this idea that the lack, when I think what lack I yet, it's always, how do I need to change? Mm-hmm. How do I need to change mm-hmm. to be a little closer? There's so many ways, but what's the next thing? But um, I, I'd like to end on this note of the children and how we bring children to Christ. I think that it is, I heard something somewhere many, many years ago that dragging children to see, to meet God is not a good way to do it. To have them, you know, to force them to do one thing or force them, but to let them see the joy mm-hmm. of creation, the joy of family, the joy of the excite, the interest of the scriptures, the wonders of, and that as we share with them the wonder of life, if we are able to radiate that this life we've been given and living a faithful life is something that brings joy, they will then come to meet the Lord themselves and recognize him. That's true. Oh, thank you so much for your thoughts today. And I, I hope and pray that all of us will go out and reach to the Lord and make sure that the Lord becomes a better part of our lives. So thank Thank you. you. Thank you.